And uh, you can turn with me to Hosea chapter 4. As I think most of you probably know, we are currently in a series called The Hidden Prophets. We're exploring 12 books in the Old Testament that are known uh, historically as the Minor Prophets. Uh, And uh, they're divided into roughly three categories, these 12 books. Uh, Pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. And basically what that has to do with is the exile of Israel and Judah that eventually happens, where the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and conquer Israel and Judah and carry the people away into exile in other lands. And so right now we are studying the pre-exilic Old Testament minor prophets, um, and we're in our third of those books. We'll then move to the exilics, the prophets that are writing during the time of the exile, and then finally the post-exilics who are writing after the people are allowed to return to their land. Uh, This is the book of Hosea. We are in chapter 4 of Hosea this week. Hosea, in many ways, has been different from many of the other books that we've looked at thus far. Uh, The first three chapters of Hosea set up this scenario where the prophet's life is meant to be a mirror on God's relationship to Israel. Okay, And in chapter 1, we saw that God called Hosea specifically to marry a woman who was promiscuous and to have children with her. And then by the end of chapter 2, we've learned that Hosea's life and marriage was sort of a living metaphor for God's relationship to Israel. The things that were transpiring in his life and marriage in many ways mirrored what was going on in the relationship between God and Israel because Israel had also, in a sense, been promiscuous. Um, And and that was certainly going on in in the normal sense of that word, but in a bigger sense, it was going on in in the sense that they were worshiping a host of other gods. Um, And in particular, a god called Baal, um, who was sort of a fertility god to them. In chapter 3, we saw that Hosea found himself in the position of having to reclaim his wife, Gomer, from some kind of slavery. And so he went and he literally bought her back. And God said, you are to do this because this is what I'm doing for Israel. And and so that ultimately led us to Christ and uh, the ways that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has purchased all those who call on his name with his blood. This is a a picture of what ultimately is to come in the person of Christ. So so this is the basic framework thus far. And if you've missed any of the weeks of this, I'd really encourage you to go back and check them out. Um, The people of Israel are wayward, right? They They are lost, to use modern language, and God is enduring their sin. He's been kind of bearing with their sin, even though he's been greatly displeased. And while the people would face consequences for their disobedience, even though the Assyrians would eventually come in and wipe them out in a sense, the future hope is that God will ultimately provide a redeemer who will restore his people. From there, though, after chapter 3, the book changes a bit, in that we don't get a whole lot more about the story of Hosea and Gomer. And instead, we get these poetic chapters that are prophecy about Israel's sin and God's response to their sin. And so we're going to divide these 11 chapters into two sections, and we're going to look at them starting today and finishing next week. So let's begin this morning, Hosea chapter 4. We're just going to read the first three verses of this chapter, but keep your Bible open because we'll explore some other verses here in chapter 4. Um, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. 
For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field. And the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The word of the Lord. So Hosea saves some of his harshest words for chapter 4. And, and it may not seem like it as you read through this, if you're reading the ESV version or something like that. I would encourage you at some point this week, read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this chapter in the message. Um, and, and you'll get a sense of just the depravity that Israel has sunk to. Um, it's honestly something I wouldn't, I don't think I would even read it with the kids in here. Like, but you'll get a sense of the depths of their sin, if you read through that. And, and so, if you remember the book of Amos, um, and, and, and Hosea's writing at roughly the same time as the prophet Amos into the same cultural situation, the same king is in power at this time. In the book of Amos, his primary accusation against Israel was that they had crushed and oppressed the poor, right? The primary issue that he had with them was their treatment of sort of the least of these in society. Um, Amos was also writing to wealthy elites, uh, that he was writing to people who had enriched themselves and lived comfortable lives and ease on the backs of the poor. Hosea, though, I think drills deeper into what I believe is truly the issue here, and it's an issue of knowledge. Look at verse 1 up here. Hear the word of the Lord, and he goes on down, he says, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's no knowledge of God in the land. But the people still gave Yahweh God some lip service. There was still like what we would think of as Jewish religious stuff that was going on in the nation of Israel. But God was ultimately seen as just one among many gods at this point for the people. He was another God. And you could probably make the case based on scripture that the people were primarily worshiping Baal, that that had taken precedent over everything else. But Hosea's point is not that the people don't know about God. His point is you don't know him. Not that you don't know about him, but that you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him, is what he's saying. And so as a result of this, the moral state of the nation is laughable. There's swearing, there's lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. They cross all the boundaries. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. There's no, like, moral standard in the land anymore. And Hosea's not looking at these things through, like, a moralistic lens, meaning his primary goal here is not just to get the people to, like, straighten up and act right. It's not just to get them to be nicer people or kinder people or to just stop doing bad things. That's not the sole point here. Rather, he sees this behavior as being symptomatic. It's symptomatic of a larger, far deeper issue. And, and the issue is that these people have lost their knowledge of God. They've lost their knowledge of God, meaning they've lost any sense of relationship to him, any sense of intimacy with him. And he repeats this in a more final way. If you look down in verse 6, he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because they've rejected knowledge. He says, because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priests to me. 
And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Their lack of relationship with the Lord is ultimately bringing about not just their present behavior, but also ultimately their undoing. The Bible uses the word knowledge in a really interesting way. Uh, The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Hebrew word here for knowledge is the word da'ath. Da'ath. It's a word that isn't just talking about intellectual knowledge or like book knowledge, but rather it's talking about experiential knowledge. The idea is that I know something not just because I've read it or because someone has told it to me, but because I've lived it. Like I have this experience of it. So say, for example, that I didn't know how to ride a bike, right? I could go read a book on how to ride a bike. I could take in some intellectual knowledge. I could learn about the mechanics of how it works. I could memorize all of that information. But that still doesn't mean I know how to ride a bike, right? I know about how to do it, but I haven't actually done it. Until what? Until I actually try to do it. Until there's some sort of experience of getting on a bike and trying to make it work. And often that kind of knowledge is, require, is acquired through trial and error, right? Like, I have, to, I have to try to do this thing so that I can figure out how I'm doing it wrong and so that I can learn to do it better. So you could refer to this kind of knowledge as intimate knowledge, meaning I know it because I've been close to it, like I've really kind of examined it and I've tried it. In ancient Hebrew, uh, the root of da'ath is, is this. It's the da'ath. And it comes from the Hebrew word dalet, or really the Hebrew letter dalet, spelled like this, dalet. And dalet in the Hebrew alphabet kind of looks like a kind of a backwards R. Um, but originally, before there, were, um, before there were letters in the Hebrew alphabet that looked like this, it was mostly pictograms or pictographs. So dalet in the original kind of looked, and I'm going to butcher this, but, but it kind of looks something like this. And it was meant to be a picture of a tent door, like the flap on the front of a tent. And these pictures had meaning. So the meaning here has to do with the fact that this is something that hangs, but also the fact that people come and go through it. Like, so there's kind of this coming and going, this to and fro thing that happens with a tent door. Um, in order to come up with the word for knowledge, though, you have to take dalet and you have to pair it with another Hebrew letter, ayim. Ayim kind of looks like a Y, like an English Y. But in the original pictograph, it looked something like this. It looked like an eyeball. And it has to do with seeing. And so when you put these two things together, a tent flap and an eyeball, the idea is something to the effect of the eye that is going to and fro and is examining everything, that, that kind of sees everything as it, as it moves. It's not stopping. And so this is where we get this word, um, da'ath. And this was... Kind of, if you get into the Hebrew mind, this is how they thought about knowledge. 
right? So it isn't just things I've taken in on an intellectual level. There's sort of this experiential thing that's happening, and it's, it's when my eye is not satisfied and just keeps digging and keeps going deeper and keeps moving to and throw. And so thus, we get from that some of the ways that the word knowledge is used in Scripture, such as Genesis 4. So Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Or Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of your heart. Or even on into the New Testament, 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now that verse was originally written in Greek, but if you were to translate it into Hebrew, it would read something like, and by this we may be sure that we have an intimate relationship with him if we preserve his directions. Like, not just knowing about him, but if I really know God, if I really have relationship with God, then I will do what he tells me to do, is the basic idea. So all that to say that Hosea's point is that Israel, you don't know him, right? You don't have knowledge of God in the sense that you are with him, that you are intimate with him. You don't preserve his directions. You do whatever you think is best. Uh, the other night at a book club, we talked about how God is perfect in wisdom and how the scripture calls us to pray for wisdom and indicates even that the Lord loves to give wisdom to people. And yet so often, we don't pray for wisdom, we pray for knowledge, right? We pray, we pray Lord, tell me what to do. Give me an answer. Show me the next step. Show me what is right. Lord, give me knowledge. Give me understanding. And yet, biblical wisdom is rooted not in our knowledge of what is to come in the future, right? Because we're not intimate with what is to come in the future. We don't know that. No, no, no. Wisdom in the Bible comes from our knowledge of God. It comes from being intimate with God. This is why Solomon in Proverbs 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If your so-called knowledge of God is not couched in a sense of fear or awe at his enormity and his power and his mystery, then is it really God that you know? For the Israelites, their lack of fear of the Lord declared that they didn't actually know him. Like, you don't actually know the Lord if you can worship other gods without any concern. You're not intimate with him. You don't have a sense of fear or awe of his power and enormity and mystery. If you've ever done one of our uh, How to Study the Bible courses that we've done a couple times, you know that the most basic method of Bible study is what's known as the inductive Bible study method. Um, it's just a simple three-part observe, interpret, and apply. 
So in order to study the Bible well, effectively, we first have to like adequately observe what's on the page and do the work of asking contextual questions. Who's writing this? When was this? Uh, who are they writing to? What's the cultural situation at the time? Like really observing what's on the page. And it's only once we have thoroughly and adequately observed what's on the page that we can then move to the question of what does this mean, Right? It's only then that we can interpret it, and only once we've observed it and interpreted it, interpreted it can we move to this stage of going, what does this mean for me? And yet so often for many of us, we want to do like a quick observation and then immediately jump to application, right? We want to quickly read what's on the page, not do any of the work of actually trying to figure out the context of what the uh, biblical author was going for or what the meaning of the text actually is. We just want to go, what, go, what do I do with this? Right? How do I apply this to my life? And, and so we can easily miss what the actual meaning of a text is or what it's for, what its purpose is, if we don't do the work of actually studying the Scripture. And, and, and yet, I confess to you guys that as I read this text today, I, I so want to do that. Like I want to quickly read it and then just jump to application because I want to do that because I want to immediately jump to America in 2021 because so much of what Hosea accuses Israel of here in this chapter, we are also guilty of. We're also guilty of. Like we talk often of the dangers of Christian culture because so often it looks like a people who claim knowledge of God, but do they really know him, right? Or do they just know about him? Is there a fear of the Lord in them? For Israel, the answer was clearly, nope, no fear. That's why the marriage of Hosea and Gomer is so appropriate. Like, Gomer doesn't deserve Hosea, right? She doesn't deserve his love. She certainly hasn't earned his love or his faithfulness. And yet, he's willing to give all his love and all his faithfulness to her, despite her reputation and despite her past transgressions. And he was willing to double down, not only because the Lord had called him to, but because he has love for this woman, right? To double down and having children with her, having three children with her. And, and when she went back to her former way of being that we read about in chapter three, what does he do? He follows the word of the Lord, and he gives his own money, and he buys her back. And, and based on her unfaithfulness and Hosea's actions of faithfulness, we have no problem when he demands her from like then on to be faithful to him, right? Like, I've redeemed you. I've reclaimed you from the terrible situation you were in. I have literally purchased you, and my stipulation is this, that you would just be faithful to me. Like, that's not an unreasonable ask, is it? And yet, Hosea knows Gomer, but Gomer really does not know Hosea in the way that we're talking about. To truly know Hosea would have been to see his sacrificial love and respond accordingly. Now, turn with me over to chapter 11. This isn't going to be on the screen. Chapter 11. Hosea goes on for many chapters in here decrying Israel's lack of knowledge of the Lord and just all of the junk that comes from that. But then we get to chapter 11, and he turns and speaks instead of God's knowledge of Israel, right? So Israel doesn't know the Lord, but the Lord knows Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yokes, the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. That's a father talking, isn't it? The father talking about his children. Like this in many ways is the father of the prodigal son. Like waiting at the road. When our oldest, Aubrey, was born, they put her under the warming light, you know, in the delivery room. And I went over to look at her and like take pictures and I'd set my hand down next to her, and she reached out and grabbed my finger, right? Which was an incredible moment for a first-time dad. And it was this moment where I think the Lord showed me like, just how critical my role as her father was and is. And at that point, she's completely helpless, right? Like we had to do everything for her. But the time is fast approaching where not only do we not have to do everything for her anymore, but where she's going to decide that I'm a complete idiot, right? And that I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Here's the thing. The thing we have to be wary of is not simply spiritual infancy. It's, it's not just being dependent on the teaching of others or the faith of others, I think the thing that some of us need to be wary of is spiritual adolescence, which is getting to this point where we think we know a thing or two or the point where we think we know better than other people. Israel's spiritual infancy, to use what God's saying here in chapter 11, their spiritual infancy was like in Egypt, they had no choice but to rely on God. They were totally at his mercy. But once they kind of got out on their own, got their own place, right, suddenly they think they know what's best. And that's when things started to turn south. But the father's faithfulness remains, much like the faithfulness of Hosea remains, even when we think we know better than him. And this is the point of chapter 11. You've left me, but I haven't left you, Right? You're the one who's tried to pull out, but I haven't gone anywhere. So again, it's the father like waiting at the road for the prodigal son to return, looking out into the distance because the father hasn't gone anywhere. And once the son learns his lesson, once the son realizes that his way is not the right way and that he doesn't have all the answers and decides to come home, the father is there. When you realize that you don't actually have it all together and that true maturity is actually total dependence on God, then he's like, I'm here to receive you, Israel, and to welcome you in as a beloved son. If you've ever heard the expression that you spell love, T-I-M-E, I think that kind of gets to the heart of what's happening here. You cannot know someone 
you don't spend time with, right? You cannot know a God that you don't really worship. Or you can't really know a God if you're actually worshiping a bunch of other things. You can't really know a God that you don't honestly talk to in prayer. You, you can't really know a God whose word you won't read. In a way, this is Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours thing. If you all familiar with his book, Outliers, great book, uh, if you haven't read it, um, his basic claim is it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, right? It takes 10,000 hours. And, and, and here's the thing, though. If, if your exposure to God is only on Sunday mornings, you will come nowhere close to being an expert, even if you're here every single Sunday for your entire life, right? In an 80-year lifespan, you will have only spent a little over 4,000 hours, in church on Sunday mornings, if you're there every single Sunday from the moment you were born to the moment you die. But, but here's the thing. In Gladwell's book, it's not just about accumulating 10,000 hours. The 10,000 hours are 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, right? So it's not passive. It's deliberately active, which means you just passively sitting in a worship service with no intention of retaining or seeking to practice what you hear wouldn't even count towards the 10,000 hours in his paradigm. And yet, how many Christians do you know for whom that's it? It's like, we're going to say grace over dinner, and I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning, and that is it. That's my life. And, and we wonder why there is so much seeming immaturity in the church. It's because it's not even possible for you through this time alone to truly come to know the God that we're talking about. This is why your life and your deliberate practice of Christ is so critical. This is why personal time in the scripture, in prayer, in spiritual practices is absolutely essential if your desire is to know God. Deliberate practice is defined as one, like doing the thing, whatever the thing is. Like, is it reading scripture for you? Is it prayer? It, like, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm going to set aside a time to do it. And then, secondly, I'm going to constantly strive for improvement in it. And then I'm going to monitor my performance in it. And then I'm going to evaluate my success in it. And then I'm going to work on the aspects that I'm not good at. That's kind of how he defines deliberate practice, right? So it's this, I'm trying it, and I'm stepping back, and I'm examining it. And then I'm trying it again. And then I'm going, what went well? What didn't go well? How do I get better at the things I didn't do well? I played the guitar and I played the piano. And back when I was in junior high and high school, man, I would come home from school every day and spend an hour or two in my room just practicing, like learning new things, learning songs, learning things I couldn't do, trying to do things I didn't know how to do well. Uh, once I got out of college, though, it was very rare that I would just like sit down and like spend an hour practicing the guitar. And, and so as a result, I'm as good now as I was when I was 18, even though that was over 20 years ago now, right? I, ha I don't have 20 more years of, like, progress because it hasn't been deliberate, right? So I'm, I'm just at the same level. 
And the same thing is true for us in our faith, guys. Like, if we're not seeking to know him, it's going to be so difficult. Two weeks ago, Justin talked about imitating Christ. We cannot imitate somebody we don't know. We can't put it into practice in our lives. So, yes, it can seem sometimes that the answer to things and the churchy answer to things is, well, have you read your Bible? Have you prayed? Like, have you done these seemingly, like, top-tier spiritual things? And yet the answer for so many of us is not deliberately, not with a great deal of intentionality, right? Not where I'm stepping back and going, what went well, what didn't go well? How can I do that better? How can I engage it more fully? That's why discipleship isn't about just you in a bubble, right? If people are really going to mature and grow into Christ, there has to be someone else in the mix, like somebody a little bit further down the road than you, walking alongside you, speaking into your life, and helping to show you what some of these things look like. It really makes perfect sense when you step back and look at it. How do you get better at something? I get better by practicing. How do I learn what I'm actually supposed to be practicing? I look at someone else who does it right? I get on YouTube and I watch a video of somebody who plays the guitar better than I play the guitar. And I try to do what they do. That's what discipleship is. That's what Jesus was doing with his guys. So let me wrap up. I want us to take just a few moments to ourselves considering these things and and, and just asking the question, where is the space in my week where I'm intentionally practicing Christ, right? Is there a time every day, even? Is there a time during my week when I'm like, I am like seeking to learn more of what's in the scripture, right? Or I'm, I'm seeking to spend deeper times in prayer with him. Or I'm trying new spiritual practices like fasting or meditation. Things that like God-loving Christians have been doing for centuries, but that many American Christians have never even scratched the surface of. Where is that space in your week, in your life? And, and then who's walking with you in that, right? Let's take just a few moments of silence to consider those things. Take some notes if you need to. Write some things down. What's the Lord showing you this morning? And then I'll pray for us.